This is Shatter. I'm Scott R. Anderson. This week, authors Kelly and Zach Wienersmith on their book exploring the pros and cons of space settlement, A City on Mars. The explicit purpose of settlements is to have families and generations living in space. And so you're going to be getting exposed to radiation, you know, from the moment you are an egg in your mom's body all the way through to the end of your life. And that's a lot of time to be exposed to radiation. It's dangerous to underestimate the psychological effect of space activity on Earth. Like the day after Sputnik, both Eisenhower and Khrushchev failed to anticipate the huge PR effect. I do think, you know, if if tomorrow China revealed that they had three dudes hanging out in a base on Shackleton Crater, I think there would be a pretty non-trivial Western response. There is some water on the moon, and it's trapped in these craters. So the premium real estate in the place that we're most likely to start learning about how to do settlement is very small. And now getting into international law, the rules about what you can do are very vague. Kelly and Zach, we're thrilled to have you here on Chatter today to talk about this very interesting book um, that combines science and cartoons and the law and outer space and many of my favorite things. Um, And the law part is kind of a surprise. Like this is a law book in substantial part, at least the last (laughs) third or half is about international law in particular. Like as I was reading and I read an excerpt from the Montevideo Convention of 1933, I think I swooned briefly uh, (laughs) because... Because this is the sort of stuff that I love and spend a lot of time on, to to the exclusion of most international lawyers even. So I'm really excited that you all <laughs> dug deep into it in the space context. But let me start a little bit with you all. Uh, like, how did you, you all are an interesting couple to be working on this book and this topic together in this way. It's a book that is, deals with very serious and heavy and complicated topics, but with a light voice and with cartoons scattered along the way. How did you all end up? working together and on these sorts of projects, this being, I think, your second book together, right? Yeah. So uh, Zach is a cartoonist and being funny and uh, dorky is sort of his trade. Uh, But he also is a big nerd and reads a lot about physics and math and stuff like that. And I'm a parasitologist and an ecologist. So I study parasites and their effects on wild animals. Um, But we both really like researching lots of different things. And we, you know, we We decided we were going to write a book together about emerging technology because it was an excuse to learn about that topic. So we wrote this book called Soonish, and two of the 10 technologies that we dealt with related to space. And after writing those two chapters, we thought to ourselves, space settlement might be coming kind of soon. The cost of launching stuff to space is going down really quickly. And, you know, as, as far as we can tell from the pop science stuff we've been reading, we know how to keep humans alive in space. What's holding us back is that it's just too expensive to send all of that equipment up there. And then the asteroid mining chapter made us think, you know, and also we're not going to have to send that much stuff from Earth because there's all these resources in space and we're just going to grab them and build these cities on Mars. And so since space settlements are probably going to happen within our lifetime. Let's write the near-term guide to what that's going to be like. Uh, And we hadn't planned on having a third of the book (laughs) being about international law and why this is way more difficult than we thought it was going to be. But the more research we did, the more we were like, oh man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff standing in our way. So so part of what happened there is one of the questions we would ask a lot of people was, well, what kind of rules would be in place if someone wanted to sling a heavy hunk of metal at earth? 
And in retrospect, we didn't talk to, I don't think any international lawyers for that book. We talked to like entrepreneurs and kind of like space nerds. And with only one exception I can think of, which is Dr. Martin Elvis, it was a kind of like, oh, no one's really thought about that. And there's, you know, who knows what would happen? And, um, or it's not really a problem. And so we were like, so, so in, at some point in a pitch pack, we included, oh, well, maybe like 10% of the book we'll have to deal with. We'll talk about the international law. And it just turned out to be so very rich. Um, and also requiring so much contextualization uh, that it ended up kind of growing into this huge chunk of the book. So tell me a little bit about your your methodology to get really boring for a little while Ooh. going into this, uh, because, you know, you guys, again, you're, you have professional backgrounds where you've dealt into certain related topics. You're interested in them, but you're also not your conventional astrophysicist, astrobiologist. I don't know if astrobiology is a thing, but something like that. The people who work in these fields, uh, some of whom we've had on the podcast before talking about this and have dealt into this from different perspectives. How did you orient yourself to this topic, which it's worth noting, there's like a big community of people out there in the private sector and academia who have spent a lot of time thinking about this. So how did you approach orienting yourself in this field, in this area to bring together what is a pretty comprehensive book that tackles it from scientific angles, legal angles, sociological, political angles. Who did you talk to? How did you go about finding out who to talk to? So so the biggest thing is that we first spent a year researching before we even asked a publisher. And then when we talked to them, we asked for three more years. So, so a, big, a big part of how we were able to even kind of, you know, we would not have felt confident if we had to write this book in two years. It just couldn't have been done. Um, I'm so writing on the name of your publisher so that I can uh, make a yeah. note that if I need a patient publisher, that's a good person to reach <laughs> well, out to. See, see, we're lucky because we have like, like I'm a cartoonist and Kelly's a scientist, so we don't need to write the book to eat. So like the, the, the book is a thing we love doing, but, but, you know, so we were in a position to be able to say, look, we can't. Um, and so, you know, our view is essentially for, for any one of these fields, you know, if, if you started this book as a planetary scientist, that would have given you about 10% of this book but then you would have had to research other stuff. Or if you were like an expert in space law, that would have given you maybe 20% of this book, but you would have still had to learn all this other stuff. So the one nice thing is because it was an overview of so many fields, you know, there wasn't exactly anyone who, who, who was already doing this. Um, so we had a little bit of an advantage there, but you said we'd get boring. So we could talk about process, which, which, uh, <laughs> because this is, this was a big part change. of the book. It's an important yeah. part of it. A, a huge part. So, so, you know, what happened was, so with, with Soonish, which was our last book, it was maybe literally one-tenth, one-twentieth the amount of research that went into this book. It was a much lighter, more joyous uh, <laughs> research project. Less impactful. <laughs> yes, yes, less impact. That's right. Um, but so for that, we essentially just kind of divided and conquered, like, oh, you go research this one thing and write it up, and we'll, we'll fiddle with each other's writing, but that's it. But this was so huge, we had to engage in division of labor, which happened maybe a year and a half in, where we realized, okay... Roughly, so we both researched, but our joke was like, I can read very quickly with 80% recall, whereas Kelly reads very slowly with 100% accuracy. And so I would do a lot more ranging. Like, I, I read a lot of like astronaut memoirs, a lot of um, old future casting books about space, and also some in depth research. But, but like, to make sure we were right and talking about the right things and representing the arguments properly, that was Kelly's like deep dive. And so she would take my notes and her notes and compile a thing we would call the dossier uh, for a given chapter, which would be like a 40-page monster document with like inklings of structure in it uh, about how we should make the arguments. And then my job was to take that, because I'm, I'm more into writing and editing, 
uh, was to take that and turn it into a short thing that um, skipped over all the stuff Kelly loved that was in the research, um, but kind of told a story. And and then actually the, the humor and drawing part was kind of like the very last thing. That's like a little finish that was put on at the end uh, to, to make it more readable, which uh, may, maybe not true for this audience, but we felt was especially important for some of the international law stuff, which can be pretty thick. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a very involved process. And there's more. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I also went to, you know, the Human yes. to Mars Summit, a National Space Society working group meeting where they were talking about like, well, what do we still need to know for making rotating space stations? Uh, the International Astronautical Congress. So I went, you know, I went to a lot of, a lot of different conferences and met a lot of different people. And then once we had a draft of a chapter, we would go to like the names of the authors whose textbooks we thought were most helpful. And we would, um, send our chapter to them and say, all right, can you let me know if this looks okay? And so each one of our chapters has been reviewed by a couple different experts. Um, and then we'd, you know, make edits or if we needed, we'd get on a zoom call to get some more information from them. And then we also had general readers who we didn't think knew any of this stuff to read it over to tell us where we were maybe getting something wrong uh, or would not explaining something very well. Uh, and then the last thing, the very last thing when we thought the book was done, I went through every single sentence <laughs> and found a reference for every single sentence <laughs> that wasn't a joke and uh, used that to make the bibliography to make sure we were getting it right. That was that was a brutal that period. Was a that few was months good, of yes, I like was taking I was watching the kids and you were in the barn alone with a miserable, <laughs> miserable <laughs> because it's boring at that point. Uh, but yeah. anyway, so yeah, that's how, that was the process. Footnoting is an important part of any sort of legal writing, unfortunately, uh, perhaps to a fault, uh, some might argue yeah. in legal scholarship in particular, but you spared people the footnotes, but you do a very thorough bibliography, which I think is a good balance to strike uh, for the most part. Um, so I want to talk a little bit to start with, you lay the book out kind of like a legal brief in a way, although it's ultimately kind of a policy prescription you all settle on, um, but you you front load the facts. And then you bring in the law and the policy afterwards. You, you you prime us with a lot of science, and then you drift towards the most more sociological and political elements of the picture, which I think is a good way to do it. And I, I kind of want to recreate parts of that for folks here, even though we're going to talk about the legal part. But I want to start with talking about what is the argument you're responding to in this? I mean, the book comes off as a critique of the idea that we are in, particularly of the idea that we are in the short term going to have space settlements that it is desirable or practical or likely. Um, and perhaps even go even further to say that there are negative downsides and uh, unintended consequences of that, potentially the pursuit of that. Um, focusing on short-term you know, critiques of some of this, to some extent, could be a little bit of a straw man, right? Like yeah. very few people are saying this technology that we need to do these things exists now. It's the idea that we have some sort of vision and we're working towards chunks of it, right? Um, so what is, what are the specific arguments? Where do you see your book fitting into this discussion about the different motivations or arguments for or against the sort of conduct we're doing today and the sort of behavior or activity we may be, may be pursuing 10 years or 50 years down the road? So I, I know Zach wants to answer this question, <laughs> but I just wanted to jump in about the straw man thing. So, you know, Elon Musk is saying that in 2029, we're going to have boots on the moon, on Mars, and 20 to 30 years later, we're going to have a million people there. And so, like, there are people saying it's going to happen soon. And we all know that, you know, you got to multiply by the Elon Musk factor. Everything is exactly. like, you know, <laughs> times two. But but he'll tell you that, you know, they they turn impossible into late. So he, he you know, he thinks this is going to happen in his lifetime. So there certainly are people who are saying it's going to happen soon. Mm -hmm. 
and I guess we're saying they're definitely wrong. Yeah, I, 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 the way I'd want to say it is, is I think some of these arguments, um, it, it almost is like whether it's a straw man or not depends on what community you're in. So like uh, there, there are, and I, mean, I think we cite some several of them early on. There are people who are like explicitly on our side, think this is totally reasonable. There are people who one guy called it, one prominent guy called us the enemy uh, because we were saying <laughs> it wasn't going to be soon. Um, so like th- there's there's a non-trivial faction who perceive us as like wrong and maybe evil, uh, it, evil in the specific sense of sort of slowing down lots of good stuff for humanity. Um, so, so we're responding to them. We're also responding to the discourse, which I know is like really fuzzy and I don't like saying a word like the discourse. Uh, but what I will say is what we did to try to get that is like, we have a feeling about what people are saying from articles and people we talk to, but we also, like I was saying earlier, I think we read something like two, three dozen past books predicting the near term future from their vantage going back to the twenties. And you really do see the same arguments over and over and over that we're trying to reject that this is an environmental solution, that this is like the only way to stop calamity from humanity, that we're going to have to put excess population somewhere that it will make us wise or great or, or I don't know, more democratic or individualistic or whatever you want us to be. Um, so, so we're kind of responding to that. Um, I, I'm, you know, like one way to say it is like, there, there are a couple aspects to this argument, one of which is what we worry is that as a result of one, the discourse and two, the apparent PR benefit to leaders and agency heads of acting like stuff is imminent. We want to push back on that just to say these arguments are stupid. This is not imminent. Like there, there, there ought not to be any fight over mining rights on the moon because it's idiotic. There is no benefit. Like so, so, but but the unfortunate thing is you get agency heads and leaders who say there is a fight. There is already a cold war that will take place on the moon or something. And so um, so the, the, like we're, we're pushing back against feasibility, but then the second part, and this is where the law comes in more, is we're pushing back against the desirability of, of doing this stuff. Um, so I, 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 yeah, I hope that answers your question because uh, because I do worry. It feels like it feels a little nuanced to say it's important not to do this. And also we're not going to do it because it's unfeasible. <laughs> but but what we're arguing is essentially it's probably not feasible. It's really not feasible in an ethical fashion in the short term. But then also we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking it's going to be really remunerative or important to like human destiny in, in the near term because nations could get in. You know, we could, we could get tension over that. We could get escalation over that. Um, so I guess that's the the case we're trying to make. So we've got so with that kind of thesis statement in mind, let's let's walk through a little bit of the argument of the book, I think, in kind of short form. I don't want to give any any of the good stuff away. We can't do the cartoons. It's an audio format. <laughs> uh, but let's go through at least some of the arguments, beginning with, as you guys do, the facts of it. Right. Um, you you kind of I, I think it's worth thinking of the facts kind of in two different buckets, right? We have the internal facts, the realities of human biology and psychology, and the external facts, which is the realities of outer space and foreign planets and, and what it would actually mean. So let's start with that first bucket, that inside bucket. For you all, what are the big barriers that we're talking about that people overlook about human biology and psychology that make this a particularly difficult enterprise um, and that aren't easily surmounted in, certainly in the near term at least? So one of the things that really surprised me when we started, when you know, when we cracked open our first space medicine textbook was, you know, I assumed that we already knew how space radiation impacts the human body and what it would be like to live in partial gravity. But it turns out that the many decades of data that we've collected from the hundreds of astronauts who have gone to space 
is not actually relevant to space settlement itself. So one particular problem is that if you're on the moon or Mars, you are much more exposed to space's radiation. And radiation in space is different than what we have on Earth. And the astronauts that are, for example, on the International Space Station are protected by Earth's magnetosphere. So they're not getting the dose of radiation that you would get if you were living on the moon or living on Mars. So we, we found one review paper that even said, we're not even sure space radiation causes cancer, but it's reasonable to assume that it can. And that was from 2018. And that's like, that's where we are. We think probably this is going to be bad, but we don't understand it very well. And, you know, that that matters for a lot of reasons. And one of them is, you know, the, the explicit purpose of settlements is to have families and generations living in space. And so you're going to be getting exposed to radiation, you know, from the moment you are an egg in your mom's body all the way through to the end of your life. And that's a lot of time to be exposed to radiation. And when we send astronauts up, you know, one, they're not exposed to most of the radiation you'd be exposed to on the moon or Mars. And two, they're up there for, you know, weeks, months, and in a few cases, a year, but never even two years. The longest day is 437 days. So radiation, we really don't understand it. Uh, also, they're in free fall, which is essentially zero gravity. And we know that that's bad for bones and muscles and you get a lot of deterioration. So for example, uh, hips deteriorate at 1.1% uh, per month. You lose bone mineral density. So that's pretty quick. And, uh, and that's in free fall. And so we don't know, you know, the... Mars has one third gravity relative to Earth. Maybe that's enough to make 1.1% go down to zero, or maybe it goes down to 0.2%. But now you're talking about decades of someone's life rather than months. And like, I wouldn't want to be the first woman on Mars when labor kicks in, hoping that my hips hold out. Like, that sounds scary. And so we don't understand the impacts of partial gravity. So that's another area where we don't have enough data. Uh, we're starting to get some data. So there are these wheels that the Japanese Space Agency sent up that simulate gravity. So you can simulate Martian gravity and see what that does to a mouse. But that's a far cry from a human. Uh, and in general, an area that we felt like biologically we really don't know enough about is, you know, we've sent adults to space, but we've never sent babies to space. And we've never tried having babies in space. And to us, it ends up feeling unethical these all of these unknowns that could happen and then maybe you're going to have you know a baby in space and things are going to go horribly wrong and uh you know a lot of people just sort of don't talk about what that might be like on mars but the people who do talk about it say very uncomfortable things like look we're going to have to handle the fact that probably this isn't going to go well initially there's going to be some problems and everybody's going to have to be working so hard to keep the settlement going that maybe we're just going to have to like, you know, we're going to have to change our threshold for what we call valuable human life. And so if people are born with disabilities and they can't contribute, uh, you know, we're going to and then they sort of trail off. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes they'll say we're going to have to have a lot more abortions and, and it's going to be forced and it gets uncomfortable quickly. So to us, it seems like there's a lot of ethical problems associated with how little we know about biology right now. Psychology, we were kind of surprised to not find lots of cases of space madness. Like, you know, we, we thought that you know, being surrounded by the vacuum of space and, you know, and you, you hear stories about the International Space Station having leaks from time to time. And like hearing, you know, being in the vacuum of space and knowing that your facility leaks sometimes, I would have trouble sleeping. That might make me crazy. But actually, it seems like people do pretty OK psychologically. Um, but you should expect that when you send normal people to space, they're probably going to have normal levels of anxiety and depression and stuff like that. And we're going to need to be able to deal with it. 
And if they're on Mars, for example, there's a three to 22 minute delay in conversation because Mars is just so far away. So you won't be able to talk to psychiatrists back home. We don't know how well medication holds up when you send it through space and expose it to radiation. So there's still a bunch of things we don't know in terms of uh, psychology and medicine. You want to add to that? The the only one little thing I would add is, is one thing, you know, so a lot of that stuff, I think people might guess, although not guess how bad it is. The one other thing is reliably going to space degrades vision. Uh, and we don't quite know why. One guess is that when you go to space, you reliably do get this upward fluid shift in your body, which is used to like managing different fluid pressures or, uh, you know, it's harder to pump blood from your feet than it is from near your heart. And so if you look at a picture of astronauts, they sometimes kind of look babyish because they get what's called puffy face. Um, and so the less cute part is it's possible that's causing nerve damage. Um, and so you uh, astronauts are sent up with these goggles to adjust to the expected uh, nearsightedness they're going to get. And like, that's not great. But the scary thing is that it could just be the canary in the coal mine for uh, broader nerve damage. There's some equivocal evidence of cognitive degradation, um, but we we need more data as as we do for almost everything. So, but that's that's really cause for concern um, if if we start sending people up for longer periods. So, I mean, I think to take some of this and boil it down to the essential conditions that kind of feed into your argument, it's it's something like space travel, particularly long-term, the sort of things you would need to do to accomplish a lot of these purported objectives, whether settlements in space or space mining, things like that, it is higher risk to the point of maybe being an unfeasible, at least under current technology, but it's certainly high risk to the populations and extremely costly. Does that sound right to you? Like it, it, it is essentially that if if there is some way to, over, to surmount this, it requires a lot more investment in technology and other things that we don't have now. And even if we do have them, each person is going to have to be in a very customized environment with a lot of support to actually make this feasible. Yeah. Yeah. The, the one little thing I would want to add to that is, you know, so like if we're talking about adults who are willing to sign a waiver and go maybe die, like, you know, that's that's whatever. Uh, if, if they're compass mentis, uh, by all means. But, but you know, when you talk about a settlement, we are talking about having children. We're talking about a permanent presence. And so you're talking about people who are not did not volunteer to be born into this place. And that that's where it gets to be a serious ethical um, and, and, and legal question. And, and I would uh, hasten to add that I do think it's possible technology can address all of these problems. But we're not a lot of the space advocates aren't talking about like, OK, settlement is five decades away because first we need to go to the moon and we need to figure out exactly how do you protect from radiation and how bad is the radiation? And let's have a colony of rodents have babies first and we'll see how that goes. And, yeah. you know, there's I think all of these problems are probably surmountable, but it's it would be good, I think, to have honest conversations about the length of time and the amount of money that we need to invest if we're going to do this ethically. So we cut, we covered the internal bucket. Let's talk about the external bucket. This is my the most fun part of your book, <laughs> except for the law part, which I'll get to, except when you talk about the Montevideo Convention, which I'll get to in a little bit, <laughs> um, which is my legit favorite part. I, I love spending time reading about the different ways people think we could live in outer space uh, and different environments. I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of cloud cities and Venus is my personal <laughs> obsession. Um, the gravity is great. The temperature is great. Uh, yeah, but like, yeah. walk us, th- walk, give us a tour of the neighborhood. All right. We're on Redfin. We're house hunting. Yeah. Give us a sense of, of the big places that, you know, we're talking about mm-hmm. and, and, and what the feasibility slash desirability of those are. Yes. So the first thing to realize is that although space, uh, is big, um, the actual places where you might go are quite limited. 
so so let's walk through. So so first from the sun is Mercury, which is blazing hot and terrible, and it's actually quite hard to uh, go to on an orbital mechanics basis because you have to kind of drop in toward the sun, then slow down and get into orbit. So it's just we we you know for any place there's somebody who's proposed it, but there's really not a lot of. I think that was the one where we found some guy who was like, well, you could just sit on the terminus, which is where light meets day. And there's an okay, not kill you immediately temperature. You just move around with the shadow. Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a whole book about this, as I recall. So I think it's, like, it's the, city, the city on a train track that moves along. Yeah, just keep uh, but then going. I think it got, things did not end well for the city, regardless. Yeah. So I might support your argument. In the yeah, end. right, right, right. Okay. Um, and then there's, there's Venus, which I know you're a fan of. Uh, but... Um, you know, for, on the surface, at least, it's insanely hot. Uh, pressure is something like 100 times Earth pressure. I mean, it's like 90 times Earth pressure. There's sulfuric acid clouds. The the standard comparison is hell. Um, and uh, But as you noted, it is the case that there's a place in the atmosphere where you're going to have, you know, Earth-like gravity, temperature, and pressure. Uh, you are... Uh, the, I guess the question is why you'd want to be like sandwiched between doom. Um, <laughs> uh, other than that, it would in some sense work. We, you know, we've talked to people. There's a group called Humans to Venus. Um, they're in favor of Venus basically because I think the least implausible thing, and we we just think the Venus thing is not on. But but the least implausible version is that gravity thing. If you know, maybe you can't live on Mars or. Uh, or, or or the moon, and we don't want to build these giant rotating space stations, which are an option we'll get to. Uh, then maybe living above the sulfuric acid clouds is uh, is not so bad of an option. Uh, then there's Earth, which is rock solid, really good place to to live in space. Um, and then you have uh, the moon. Big problems with the moon. Moon is is quite low gravity. It's about one sixth Earth gravity. Uh, there's of course no atmosphere. Uh, there are two week long day night cycles, which means it gets really, really hot, then really, really cold. The surface is what's called regolith. Uh, if you want to imagine, it's, it looks like dust, but if you put it under a microscope, it looks like any weenie knives. Uh, it's really bad, probably bad for lungs, equipment, other stuff. There's reasonably good evidence for that. Um, also, you know, since we can get a little nerdy, the moon is carbon poor. Uh, we are carbon based life. The stuff we like to eat is carbon based. Uh, it's you, you, you literally can't grow it for people who don't remember high school physics. You can't just get carbon. Um, you have you would have to bring it from somewhere from asteroids or from Earth. That makes it really hard to imagine a long term permanent self-sustaining settlement. Um, and so, so the moon is actually usually talked of as a, a launch platform because of that low gravity and atmosphere. If you could get a facility there, but that's that's tough. Um, and that basically leaves Mars. Uh, some people want to put a place in the asteroid belt, but not usually. That's um, that's uh, probably not serious. We can get into why. But um, that leaves Mars. Mars, about 40% Earth gravity. Earth-like days, about 24-hour days, uh, has all the elements you want. There's no carbon poorness. In fact, there's a very thin carbon dioxide atmosphere, which means carbon and oxygen. Uh, and humans like oxygen. If you supply hydrogen, you can generate water, air, um, and fuel. So uh, Mars is usually where the fantasy lies uh, for long-term space settlement. The big problem with Mars compared to the moon is it's, unless there's some cool new spacey technology, it's about six months inbound. Um, and on most trajectories that people take seriously, you, you've got to spend about a year there before you get six months outbound. So you're really on your own for a while uh, and you really can't get home, right? So you, if you visualize it, at some point, Earth is on the opposite side of the sun from Mars. So you can't even just kind of jetpack out uh, and beyond that, there's the asteroids, uh, asteroids just, we get into it, but, but it's, it's uh, very few serious proposals for life in the asteroids. Some people have 
proposals we don't think are very plausible for mining the asteroids. Beyond that, you're talking about gas planets. You can't even land on them. There's no surface to land on in any way. You would die. And then even further out, there's there's ice. But there are moons. There, yes, and there are moons of Saturn and Jupiter. Sometimes people talk about Titan or Enceladus, but honestly, the arguments are kind of bizarre sometimes. Like people will be like, you know, on Titan, there's a methane atmosphere and methane, you can burn it. So that's great. And you're like, we don't, we don't usually talk about, you know, speaking of going on Zillow or whatever, <laughs> you don't usually talk about things this way. Well, Enceladus, you can fly, right? Because the atmosphere is I think is it's thick. Titan, you can fly. Yeah, so yeah. The, 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 yeah. And, and Enceladus, you could dig down through a core of ice and maybe there's some warm salt water. So that's nice. You know, we, like, we never talk about things on Earth this way. Um, and obviously, the, you know, beyond the asteroid belt, you're talking a really long time to get there. Um, and so that, that is it. Uh, there's not a good place, right? There's, there's which places like maybe you can do this. Um, and, and, and usually the locus of those, uh, hopes is Mars. But you got to talk about the rotating space. Oh, oh, yeah, right. Anyway. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah so the other... Lagrange points need to come up at least once. If Absolutely. Okay. I'm sorry. So the one other proposal, which goes back to the 1920s, but was really elucidated in the 1970s by main Gerard K. O'Neill is the big name here, but there were others. And the idea is you put some big rotating object, it can be a sphere, a torus, a cylinder, and you put it in space somewhere. A Lagrange point, for people who don't know, is just a, a point where your, your spaceship would sit in a stable relation to celestial objects, uh, which is nice. Um, uh, so, you know, you don't drift off into a bad situation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go into the sun or, well, you don't want to fly towards Earth or any of that. You're, so you're basically stable. Um, and... The question is how you build this because there's not any mass sitting there. Usual proposals, Gerard K. O'Neill, for example, favored putting a mass driver on the moon. And if you want to visualize a mass driver, imagine a maglev train, right? A train that floats above little magnets, only it goes up and the track just ends. Uh, and you sort of shoot payloads up that track. They go into space. You can imagine a sort of giant metal catcher's mitt that gets them. And then some vast access to solar energy creates a furnace and you are able to, by some means, often unspecified, convert just big hunks of mass into all the stuff you need. Um, other proposals would get that mass from the asteroid uh, belt. But by some means, you just need a huge quantity, millions of tons of just stuff. Um, so you can build these structures. If you've ever seen a lovely drawing of like a Tuscan village on the rim of a giant space wheel that comes from this era. It was known at the time to be ludicrous. Uh, <laughs> you, you can't have those big, gorgeous open windows because of the radiation of also maybe getting kind of nauseous watching uh, your, your ship rotate once a minute or whatever it's going to be. Um, uh, and, uh, and the main argument, so, so a lot of people are in favor of this. Often the arguments are a little silly. Frankly, people will say, you know, you could completely control the weather and climate which we already do on Earth in greenhouses. Um, and uh, But the, the, the one plausible case we say is basically if microgravity turns out to be, or microgravity or low gravity, like of Mars or the Moon, turns out to be a showstopper, meaning, say, children can't develop there or humans eventually get major medical problems there, then you have to have some alternative. So if you can't have babies, maybe you have a rotating spawning station or something that you go to. Uh but basically, the, the, the way I like to say it is, if it's the case that we really need these rotating stations, you're basically just declaring space settlement is really, 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 really hard. Harder than the really hard we already thought it was going to be on Mars. But one of the things I love about these conversations is that you'll say that to a space settlement advocate <laughs> and they'll be like, no, there's a there's a kind of technology that will solve that. So, for example, when we say, oh, we're going to have to live in rotating space stations if the gravity on Mars isn't enough, 
They'll say, well, you can put banked racetracks in there and that can simulate gravity. And of course, you're also, these proposals also have you underground because underground you're protected from radiation and from your habitat being punctured by micrometeorites and stuff like that. And so like the farther you get into these conversations, you know, you're underground living on banked racetracks and all the like technological details add up and it gets more and more complicated. Um, So there are solutions to a lot of these things, but at some point, every part of your life needs to be like managed <laughs> by technology in a complicated way that we haven't figured out yet. And it gets uh, infeasible. Yes. Let me zoom in on one part of this that I think is most relevant to the contemporary policy debates. Uh, and that's the moon and kind of like prime real estate on the moon. Cause you guys talk about peaks and lava tubes essentially yeah. being two of the main spots of real estate. I think people think of the moon as obviously differentiated. We see the spots, we see the man, we see the cheese. We know stuff's (laughs) going on up there, but I don't think people think of there being massive differences between parts of the moon in terms of desirability. It's kind of the whole thing might be settleable or accessible or usable in different ways, but but you all make the case that actually it's extremely limited, the spots you would actually want to be at on the moon. Yeah, so let's let's start with the lava tubes. So uh, we have things like lava tube. We have lava tubes on Earth as well. So the deal is you've got lava and you have it sort of moving through the Earth. And as it moves through the Earth, the outer ridge, where it's a little bit cooler, sort of solidifies and becomes hard. And when the lava finishes moving through, you're left with essentially a tube with a hard exterior and a hard bottom that usually doesn't collapse, <laughs> usually. Uh, And so you get these also on the moon and Mars, and they tend to be much bigger than the ones that you find on Earth. And so the idea here is that you would put your settlement inside of these lava tubes, and that would be nice for a variety of reasons. So one, the, you know, moon or Mars uh, having that land above you helps protect you from the radiation of space. Those incredible temperature swings that you get on the moon, they're much less intense when you're underground. So you save yourself from some of the temperature swings. Um, anything, you know, the moon is constantly being impacted by things from space. And now that's hitting the top of your lava tube instead of hitting your habitats. And that's nice. Uh, and also that regolith that Zach talked about, that's like all those little knives that gets in your equipment and you don't want to breathe it in. Uh, it's all just like hard and solidified. So you don't have that regolith to deal with. So living in these lava tubes, which are sort of limited in number is one area where we might start, uh, competing for space because if you can set up a settlement in that lava tube your life's going to be a lot easier there's even some proposals for essentially trying to like put an airlock on a lava tube and sealing it so that you can just walk around without spacesuits inside now you're still living underground which to me sounds kind of sad but also kind of awesome because you're living in a lava tube but all right <laughs> so lava tubes limited resources that are awesome but i think that's it's pretty far away for us to be able to live in one of those we're not very good at moon walking let alone moon spelunking but maybe we'll get there Um, But what I think in the near term is going to be much more likely to cause conflict is uh, setting up settlements in the few areas on the moon where you can get water. So the deal is uh, on the poles, there are areas where you have these craters and in the inside of the crater, there's water that's been trapped over geological time and it's frozen. And it's not like the ice cubes you get in your refrigerator. It's like a solid rock. And there's also some chemicals in there that you wouldn't want to drink. You'd have to clean it. But the point is there is some water on the moon. And it's trapped in these craters. And uh, if you think about a crater and how the sun is hitting it, if it's at the top of the moon, the sun sort of glances off the top of the crater. So the rims. So the rims actually get a lot of sunlight. So Zach mentioned that uh, the night on the moon is as long as 
uh, 14 Earth days. So that's a long time to go without solar power. So you're going to need something like nuclear reactors, but that gets complicated. A lot of proposals would really like to have solar power, but unless you're going to have infinite battery banks, it becomes hard if you got to go two weeks without uh, any light. So if you're on the rim, you can put solar panels up there and these are called the peaks of eternal light, but they're more like the peaks of almost eternal light. Cause it's like 86 to 90% of the time they get light. So your solar panels are doing much better here. And inside the crater, you get water. And I think the peaks of eternal light make up something like one, one hundredth of a billionth of the lunar area. So it's very small, a very small area where you can set up these solar panels and it could very easily be occupied by a nation or a company. And so these very best areas have very small surface areas and are probably the places where we're going to go first. So there are proposals from the U S and China that talk about going to the poles to tech, you know, check out the water and use the solar resources. So the premium real estate in the place that we're most likely to start learning about how to do settlement is very small. And now getting into international law, the rules about what you can do are very vague. Well, that's the perfect transition because because it really, if you boil down a lot of the facts that you all lay out, I think the kind of key criterion for the legal analysis, what enters into it, is that you have states in a situation where because this venture is so high risk and so costly, there's a strong incentive to go to the position those much more limited, much more scarce positions where you have a competitive advantage over the rest of the moon, let's say, or whatever these other locales they may focus on. It's conditions for competition, I think, is what you're, you're, you all are really driving at, that this idea that the space is a wide open terrain is millennia down the road. Before we get there, at least in the short term, it's highly competitive for a very limited number of environments um, by virtue of the nature of the mission. So that is what brings us to the legal element, right? Because when you're talking about access to scarce resources, that's where regulation comes in. The idea about how do we structure this to that competition, but it doesn't become all out competition. Um, and that begins with the Outer Space Treaty, uh, and then you all bring it to a discussion of the, of the Moon Treaty and the Artemis Accords, those being kind of the three big legal steps that we've kind of seen over the last 60 or so years. Um, let's start with the Outer Space Treaty, and before we jump to the kind of comparison with the other two, and talk about what it does that you think is most relevant and useful, and, and the big elements that are most relevant to this question about how states are approaching this, which to me sounds like it rings in jurisdiction and, and property rights. But tell us about what the big things it does in those sorts of spaces are. So the Outer Space Treaty came about during the Cold War. So the United States and the USSR, we were starting to set off nuclear weapons in space to sort of explore their uses for things like knocking out enemy satellites. And the whole international community was, you know, reasonably uncomfortable about the way that things were going. And uh, we were starting to send astronauts up at the same time. And the astronauts were not super excited about being up there when nuclear weapons were getting set off. Uh, and essentially, the USSR and the United States decided, you know what, we we would like to come to some agreement about what we can do with space to sort of try to limit our likelihood of ending up in World War III. So they go to the United Nations and they come up with the Outer Space Treaty, which comes into existence in 1967. And it has a lot of different things that aren't relevant for space settlement. So, for example, if an astronaut accidentally lands in your territory. So, you know, if John Glenn had accidentally landed in the USSR, uh, the USSR promised that they'd return him without hurting him and they'd return the spaceship and stuff too. And then there's, you know, a liability clause, a registration clause. You should register everything you send to space. But from the perspective of space settlement, the most important piece is probably Article 2, which essentially says 
you cannot claim sovereignty over anything in space. So if the United States gets to, uh, you know, Shackleton Crater, which is one of those craters that we think we're going to fight over, if you get to Shackleton Crater first, the United States can't say, all right, finders keepers, this is ours. But if you land a craft on Shackleton Crater, that craft remains yours. Even if you leave it there for decades, it is still yours. People can't say, oh, you left it behind, so we're going to move in. And it's unclear from the Outer Space Treaty what you can do with resources. So, for example, if there was something in the regolith that somebody wanted to collect and sell, or if, for example, you wanted to dig up that water and separate it into oxygen and hydrogen and then make a gas station... Uh, on the moon for other rockets. You could sell those as propellant. Uh, and so the, you know, the question is, is that different than sovereignty? Uh, and so many states argue that, that yes, that's di- collecting resources and selling them is not the same thing as sovereignty. That's totally okay. But then there are other countries that say, well, the, the Outer Space Treaty sort of intended to cover that kind of stuff. With the, the whole point was that we shouldn't be scrambling for anything up there. We wanted to keep things peaceful. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's that's the Outer Space Treaty and the ambiguity that's left. So we've got this vision of the Outer Space Treaty from this era where it is an idea that we're going to prevent assertions of sovereignty in the Outer Space Treaty. We're going to set some baseline rules about how to access it. There's this ambiguity about, you know, what happens when you take assets from the moon or from outer space, you know, ex- expropriate or take or use resources there. Um, but there is a kind of rough framework here. Then you talk about the failure, relative failure of the moon treaty, something that takes a much more collectivist view of the moon specifically. Um, And you compare that to the shift more recently to the Artemis Accords, which is a not a treaty, but a multilateral kind of non-binding political arrangement the United States has been spearheading for the last 15, 20 years or so, Um, uh, maybe a little less than that. Tell us what the, what you dress and you draw from the comparison between these two, which I thought was a pretty interesting to see this evolution. And, and you know, I, I guess the concerns that you all have coming out of this Artemis Accords moment that we're living in today. Yeah. So, you know, you get the Outer Space Treaty in 1967. There are a couple treaties that come in the following years, but they're mostly just little elaborations uh, to the treaty. But there's a push for a big treaty in the 70s that that is has some giant un name but it's usually just called the moon treaty moon agreement i'm sorry yeah the moon agreement and it would have clarified the property regime um and and maybe created uh, an agency to kind of oversee operations there um and it got you know the, the document was completed it was ratified I, I believe it's technically in force in that enough nations signed it but one backed out, and now it might, right. not, no, it might not be anymore. <laughs> yeah. but so something like seventeen countries have ratified it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but importantly, the U.S. and USSR both refuse. So that you know, when it comes to space, especially when you're talking about the seventies, that really moots everything, right? Um, and you know, we, we we different ways to interpret why it failed. But essentially, one 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 argument uh, is that it essentially didn't benefit the U.S. or the USSR. Um, and, uh, because they would have had to share stuff from the moon with all the nations of earth. And when you have two major players, you know, that, that is not super tempting. Um, and so that document is generally considered to have failed. One of the problems was that it wasn't clear how things would be shared. So it said something to the effect of when it, 
appears that resource extraction will become feasible, then we'll come up with this international body, which will govern it, and then they'll figure out the rules. And so, you know, for example, the U.S. was saying, well, that is a horrible way to incentivize going out and using resources and selling them because, you know, who's going to invest when they don't even know what the rules are going to be when they finally extract the resources? They won't know what percent of the profits we'll be able to keep or anything like that. So there was there was some concern about what would happen and how vague it was. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, so, so basically, you know, it's, it's one of these things where there, there are a lot of parties to it. Um, you know, the my understanding, it was, it was the, the U.S. like diplomats were willing to sign off on it. But when it got back to Congress, it was like, no, this is socialist stuff. This is bad for us. We're not doing this. And so it's 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 basically a dud. And then thereafter, that's 1979. And we don't get there. there legal scholars would say there was space law in the sense of, you know, that we use the word law for international law in that there were like resolutions and the culture evolved and this and that. But there wasn't there wasn't another big treaty. And now it's you know, it, we, one of the things I really like to note is it's, it, you know, Part of that may be because there are just more countries now. High decolonization was from 1945 to 1975. The number of countries multiplied by something like six. And it's it's just hard to get a major agreement. Also, you know, it's not as hegemonic of a period, you know. Um, And so um, no big deals are coming out. The U.S. basically believes this more in libertarian interpretation, this idea that you can get resources as much as you want. Um, and, and China and Russia are a little iffy on that. And then just very recently, I think in 2020, the U S comes out with the Artemis Accords. Um, and this is a document that clarifies essentially the U S position, but a bunch of countries signed on to it. And it's not just like we dragged Luxembourg in, no, no offense to Luxembourg. It's like Germany is signed. The UK is signed. I think Israel is signed. Australia. More than 20 nations have signed. Yeah. Um, and and this agreement does a lot of stuff. And uh, one thing we focus on is something called safety zones. And the idea of a safety zone, it, it's totally scientifically plausible. It's that if you have a base on the moon, someone else shouldn't just be doing stuff around there. It could be dangerous for you and for them. And to give an example, if you have a moon base, you know the moon has a patina of this dangerous regolith dust. If someone lands near your base, they're going to kick up a ton of it a uh, great distance. Uh, and it could hurt you. So it, it's reasonable to say bases should have safety zones. On the other hand, that's a sort of quasi-turf-like claim. It's obviously not sovereignty. And and I believe the U.S. specifically says this is not considered to violate the uh, Article 2. Um, but it sure is a little weird. Um, and, and given that we also don't know how big the radius of the safety zone is, and given how small the premium real estate is on the moon, you could get into a kind of scary situation. Now, now we've said we, we don't believe there's actual valuable like resources on the moon, there's valuable science and cool stuff. But 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 if nations believe there are and they can make these turfy claims, then it gets a little scary. And and so um, the safety zones are important, but also the United States has clarified that our interpretation is that it is okay to extract and sell resources. Yes. Maybe the Outer Space Treaty, you can other countries can debate. But in 2015, Obama signed the Space Competitiveness Act. And in 2020, Donald Trump released an executive order. And both of those documents said it is our interpretation that it is not claiming sovereignty if you extract and sell resources. This is maybe the only thing those two political parties have agreed on in a really long time. But it does seem to be that Americans across the board, our interpretation is that it's okay to do that. And I think China probably has a similar interpretation because they talk about having a cislunar economy. And so I, but they haven't signed the Artemis Accords. I think they can't because of a the Wolf Amendment and some U.S. laws about not being able to collaborate with China. Um, but so, yeah, you've got 
two major space powers that seem to be on board with extracting and selling resources. And maybe this is becoming customary law. Well, you won't have customary law until you have some practice probably. But um, anyway, more countries seem to be signing on to this interpretation. So, I mean, this is like a big hub of your critique of kind of the status quo, the drift of law and policy in this space is this concern about privatization. And, you know, people who are, who have been pushing for it, have been, have been lobbying for it. There's a lot of industry folks around industries that don't exist yet, like, like asteroid mining, essentially, you know, planetary resources, uh, which I don't believe is, is, is extant anymore. Um, but, uh, it was one effort to, to do this big involved in lobbying at this period. The logic basically is that I think from a public policy perspective, you are giving a incentive to private industry to begin investing in the technologies necessary to get to space. Probably just the government contracting alone and the private contracting from satellite deployment alone isn't enough to develop or encourage the development of this technology, at least not at the pace or at the volume and scalability that we want. You got to give a bigger carrot at the end of the stick. And that is this resource acquisition of some sort. I guess my question is, what is the biggest source of concern for that? Because, you know, a big part of your argument, again, is that these things probably aren't going to be that feasible in the near term. Um, and regulation, you know, the the cycle of regulation in, in evolution of American and international law tends to be limited regulation, and then it ramps up as economic activity increases, right? And you see externalities. So given that we're like pretty far out from this being a real outcome, what are the real risks of it that you see? Or is it more of a more of a long-term risk if this isn't adjusted as we get closer to actually doing these things? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, we we um, One book we really like is Dark Skies by Daniel Dudney, who's uh, like an international relations guy, but who is just like a huge space nerd. And uh, like us, there's a certain segment of the community that now despises him. Um, and not that you despise him, that you no, are. No, no. Oh, did we I are, say that? No, we are despised like Dooney. We, we share in being despised. <laughs> that's I'm right, sorry. That's yes, right. Yeah, yes. no, we like Daniel. Oh, Lott. boy. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so his argument is essentially, you know, that his concern uh, as like an international relations liberal is that uh, it just leads to escalating tension. So, so one way to say it would be. Um, you know, the, 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 well, I was going to say first space race, but I think the only space race, you know, the one from the sixties is essentially a race to do a thing anywhere on the moon. Right. So there's, there's no kind of zero sum quality to it. It's just do the thing. Um, if you're talking about these, these quasi turf like things that I guess the scary thing is you get some escalation of tension on earth. If you get, um, us or Chinese parties, uh, wanting to occupy nearby or the same space, and and and, and I, I agree. I you know I don't I don't see it like sort of like you know if the U.S. had a base tomorrow claiming some huge chunk. I don't think like tomorrow you get nuclear war, um, but I also think it's it's dangerous to underestimate the psychological effect of space activity on Earth. Like one of the, one of the stories that gets told a lot is how the day after Sputnik, uh, you know, the first satellite in 1957, both Eisenhower and Khrushchev failed to anticipate the huge PR effect that was going to happen. So, I, you know, uh, I, I do think, you know, if, if tomorrow China revealed that they had like three dudes hanging out in a base on Shackleton Crater, I think there would be a pretty non-trivial Western response. What it would be, I don't know. But that's why we're as boring people would like there to just be some sort of entity that says, can we make this boring? Well, let's let's talk about that entity and that boring, right? Because that's the solution you all kind of settle on. Um, 
And this is the part where my, all my international lawyer genes, and I am a big international law fan. Uh, sadly, like this is the part where I come up very skeptical of. Um, <laughs> but, but in part, I think because of weird parallels to your skepticism of the science of this, yeah. but is international legal regime. Talk to me about your or us about what you all are envisioning when you say that and some of the models. I think you, you draw on two good historical models mm -hmm. uh, for what you're talking about. Yeah, so I've, I've been really looking forward to this part of the conversation because uh, we, we listened to you review the book uh, on a pr another podcast and you said, oh, I'm not quite as optimistic. And I was like, oh, I want to know why. So anyway, <laughs> right, I'm looking forward to, to that, to hearing more for, of, of your thought. But so the two parallels that we draw are uh, how Antarctica is managed and how the deep seabed is managed. So around World War II, there were seven nations that already had claims on like pizza wedge shaped slices of Antarctica. And things were starting to heat up. Some shots were fired, but there was 15% that was unclaimed and the USSR and the US hadn't claimed any chunks. And part of why they hadn't claimed anything was because they didn't necessarily want to kick off World War III over the frost laden crap bag that is Antarctica. <laughs> like it's horrible. Uh, am I allowed to say that on your show? Yep, absolutely. No worries. Okay. Um, so, um, all right. So around that time, uh, the nations start to be willing to have some conversations about what we're going to do about this. And you come up with the Antarctic treaty system. And so I think it was 67 when there was 61, yeah, 61, 61 when, when this comes into reality or comes into being. And so the deal is the nations that already have claims, they agree to just sort of not talk about it for a while. <laughs> like, so you, you end up with a situation where claims had already been made, but you can still step back from the precipice and not get into like, debates and war over it but they still these claims still exist nobody has to say that they don't have these claims anymore but it's important to note that there are also overlapping claims so like there, there's an area claimed by the uk chile and um, argentina so it's like it's potentially a problem if people are not willing to just ignore or you know relax or however you want to say it about these claims. Yeah. So this has become a place where you're allowed to set up uh, research bases and they can be just about anywhere, but no one's allowed to make any new claims. And we agree to just not talk about the old ones. Uh, and the CRAMRA convention on the resource. Uh, I, I always never forget remember. the, the acronym. So there, <laughs> there was a time when people were starting to talk about, okay, we now have the technology to start extracting resources from Antarctica Let's start doing that. And so when they started talking about doing that, uh, environmentalists started getting involved. Jacques Cousteau in particular was like, no, we shouldn't be, you know, ruining this pristine habitat. And eventually all of the players got together and they agreed, okay, for 50 years, there's going to be a moratorium on not just resource extraction, but even looking to see where the good stuff is. We're all just going to cool it and focus on science. And so here's a situation where there were overlapping claims and people were able to back up and come up with a peaceful system. And yes, we decided we weren't going to extract resources, which from some perspectives is a tragedy. You know, you could lift, you know, the more resources you, we could be making money, we could be lifting people out of poverty, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's, you know, we're not getting accessing those resources. That's sad. But on the other hand, we have peace and that's pretty solid and science, which is also pretty solid. Uh, and so then you have the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And what's relevant to our conversation here is the deep seabed. So nations claim uh, exclusive economic zones, which is some chunk of the ocean adjacent to their land where they're allowed to do what they want. But beyond that, you have the deep seabed and that doesn't belong to anyone. 
1982, the first set of laws to govern it were passed, and there was some problems. So, for example, anybody who decided that they were going to extract and sell resources had to promise technology transfer. So you get the technology to extract resources, and you have to agree to give it to everybody else, make it available to everyone. So countries like the United States were like, not cool. We're not signing on to this. And so you ended up with an amendment. And in 1994, you ended up with a version that a lot of countries were willing to sign on to, not the United States, uh, but a lot of countries. And it's created the International Seabed Authority. So this is an organization, this is kind of like the Moon Treaty. You've got an international organization that makes decisions about what you're allowed to extract and how the sort of profits and the benefits that arise from the technology are going to be sort of doled out to the rest of the world and in particular underdeveloped nations. Uh, And they're currently figuring out the rules. So it has been a very long process. The rules are still unclear, but we haven't gone to war over polymetallic nodules on the deep seabed. Uh, And so there are these trade-offs where you have this slow, cumbersome system but you get peace. Maybe you don't get extraction and profits as fast as you want, or maybe never at all in Antarctica, but it does seem to do a pretty good job of preserving peace. So we are optimistic that a system, that that there could be a system we could come up with that might be able to uh, allow us to go to space, extract resources, figure out who's going to live where, uh, that is done peacefully. And so why are we wrong? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think you're wrong, but I, you know, I think there's a sequencing question here, right? Um, particularly when we're talking about short-term, medium-term, long-term, or, or short-term and immediate sort of activities. I mean, my reaction to this is somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about and dealing with uh, international legal regimes um, is that they are incredibly costly entities to set up. Um, and often the products of long chains of activity. We had this moment like after World War II where that experience made states much more willing to enter into basic international legal regimes. And that moment closed 15, 20 years later and has never really reopened. It's, it's more closed now probably more than ever with maybe like little exceptions around stuff coming from the Ukraine conflict and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like my my instinct is to say, wait, hoping to have this set up ex ante um, isn't really the way any of these legal regimes immediately developed. Um, they became, you had the incentive for states to spend their scarce resource of political effort and time and resources. They became worthwhile doing there because there became desirable activities to do in the space and a cause for competition, which in turn became a source of concern for competition, right? Um, you need to have some sort of critical mass of activity and understanding before states get to the point, particularly these days, to arrive at one of these international legal regimes. So that's that's my reservation, is that I'm not sure this vision is mutually exclusive from what we see now. Mm-hmm. Now, if the Artemis Accords was all that was to ever exist, that would be a problem. Um, but they themselves are quite express saying this is, you know, the goal is we're going to use this practice to build up multilateral rules and regimes and institutions. And so I'm not sure in part precisely because I completely agree with some of the scientific challenges of actually doing any of this at any serious scale that will even rival the, rival the relative scarcity of real estate on the moon in the near term, that I'm I'm not sure we're at a crisis moment where this activity poses the sorts of threats that uh, would preempt international legal regime being effective later, if that makes sense. I, I, I don't think we disagree. I think what we're saying is we think this would be good, but whether it's it's feasible is, is is a tougher question. One thing we saw over and over from space law scholars 
would there would almost inevitably be a paragraph that was like, you know, if you got the legal regime worked out in advance, it could save a lot of trouble later. Um, I don't know that this ever happened, but it, it was the view that that actually, you know, you talk about scarce resources, you could probably save some scarce resources by just everybody agreeing to something. But of course, you know, part of what happens in practice is you find out what you actually needed to regulate. Um, so, so obviously that matters. The one other thing I would add, and again, we don't we don't think like war is like going to happen tomorrow or anything like that. Um, but that, and for reasons that are kind of hard to explain, maybe have to do with like, like science fiction or something. People do think about stuff happening in space in a way that's different from how they think about the seabed. I like, I think if you found out tomorrow that Russia had put a little base on the bottom of the ocean, you'd be like, neato. And then you'd change the channel. Um, somehow I, I, the way I want to say it, which is maybe a little cynical is that the public has just historically always overestimated the importance of space to national power and that politicians have always been willing to use that in a cynical manner to um, to push things they want. Um, so so I, we, we are skeptical of the economic case. Part of why we want an international seabed-like framework is that it would leave open the door to economic activity if we're totally wrong. Um, but but I do worry you 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 know it, it it's it's worth noting for example that like agency funding for NASA NASA gets like over twenty billion dollars. I don't know what the the oceanographic uh noaa gets but i think it's substantially less so so there is there is something a little distinct about space well and, and i do i see your point that you need to be at a point where more stuff is happening so like the international seabed authority hasn't figured out the rules yet they're like literally working on figuring them out right now because what is it the kingdom of nauru or the, the, nauru. Nauru, that there, there is a a small country that said we are we are teamed up with the company we are ready to extract your two-year mark to figure out the rules has started and i think we're past it and they still haven't figured out the rules uh but <laughs> but like you did need to get to a point where it was like okay we are now ready to do this this is the exploration phase has happened we know where the good stuff is we are ready to start selling it but you know people started thinking about it you know in 1982 1984 and it's sort of been like you know, gaining momentum as things go. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's the end of the world if we don't have, you know, a plan in place by the time Artemis lands humans on the moon again. Um, but I think that once we start setting up, you know, bases on the best parts of the moon, it would be really nice if there was like a, a place where we could say like, all right, the U.S. gets Shackleton Crater and China's going to be cool about it because they get, you know, this other crater or something. And we... Yeah. It would be nice to have a system like that okay. that is done peacefully. So I think I I think we're in a good degree of agreement then on this. I I am here's what I will say. I will never be one to put international lawyers out of business. Uh, so NASA, <laughs> you should call us up uh, and start talking about this. Because I think thinking about this and doing the sort of creative thinking you all do in this book uh, is a really necessary step and something you want to do decades in advance for tackling some of these issues. Not just these issues, but the the much further out legal issues that begin to be raised when you start talking about actual space settlement and, you know, Mars colonies and things like that, which I feel like we would not do the listener justice if we did not touch on those further out legal issues as well, which you spend some time on in the book, which is a lot of fun. Um, and this is where the Montevideo Convention finally comes in. I've mentioned it like five times. So let's talk about it. <laughs> let's talk about space states, because uh, I thought this was a great process of dealing with reconciling this idea like what if we have people living in outer space uh but in theory 
they're not on sovereign territory. They can never be on sovereign territory, at least right. under as long as the Outer Space Treaty is a thing. Uh, and they are all under the jurisdiction of the state that either they launched from or that they're nationals of. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about how you envision space states working. When will we finally get our Mars, you know, our free Mars <laughs> nation state? And how, well, I, will, I, we, how we would, will it come about? We wouldn't want to speculate on a timeline. We will do the more interesting thing of talking about the legal mechanisms. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so this was a really interesting research project for us because um, people often say, well, you can just create space states. We'll, either we'll shred the OST or the OST you know, actually says we can create states. You just don't understand it. But like OST is pretty unambiguous. Article 2 says no sovereignty. And that's where the Montevideo Convention comes in. Um, so well, let me back up just slightly. So the, the real pain point in the research for this was reading Crawford on state creation, his, his 1200 page. It's literally one of my favorite books. I'm really hurt oh, to hear you say that. But that's okay, great. Favorite, was I it have it open in Google Play right now, actually, <laughs> for a different project. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. I don't know. Maybe you sit on the beach reading Crawford. Uh, I, I was the one who got the task of reading Crawford. And I remember just being on like page 700 and being like, God, because um, it's, it's a little it's, dense. It's, it's, a little it's, it's not action packed. Well, it's also it's got that legal thing where it's like if he's repeating a point, he doesn't say now. I already talked about this earlier. He repeats the whole thing to make sure it's clear in this other context. Um, but anyway, so that was like, you know, I think that's from 2005. So it was our sort of defining document for this section. But we did try to like, you know, see what's new in this field. But everyone I talked to was like, you have to read Crawford. It's just the deal. And um, and and I guess that was joy for you. It was, it was, <laughs> it was all right. Um, so, you know, so this is where the Montevideo Convention comes up, which which is, uh, was it 1933? There's a, a document, I think initially only meant to apply to the Americas, but sort of in that way international law works, ultimately becomes the kind of standard for what is a nation. And for our purposes, the relevant criterion is that a nation has territory, right? So even if it's eeny weeny territory, like the, you know, Vatican City or Monaco or whatever, it's got physical territory. And when you pair that with Article 2, which says no, no to territory, the answer you would think would be under international law, you just cannot have space states without violating the law. You could violate the law or you can not, you know, you can't do it. And the, the interesting thing we got into was in reading Crawford, this question of, well, like, wait a minute, international law also says you can't break up states and yet states come into existence by some means. And so we wanted to understand how that happens. And so in, in broad strokes, you know, it's when when empires break up, when blocks break up, you get the creation of new states from the entities that were in them. Right. So like the you know breakup of the Warsaw Pact or the Ottoman Empire, that sort of stuff. Um, you get states then. But what we were really interested in is how in, under like more quote unquote, normal circumstances do states come in. And between Crawford and people we talk to, the idea of identity seems to be really important and in particular self-determination, right? So the way we phrase it is you have these two big standards, these towering standards of international law. One, which is that you can't, you know, territorial integrity was talked about a lot uh, during the recent invasion of Ukraine, territorial integrity. Um, you can't break up nations. But then there's this other thing called self-determination, which is a people, meaning like Japanese people or Jewish people or Quebecois people have a right to have a say in their own governance. That doesn't mean they get a territory. It just means they can't be like super oppressed where they are. Right. So so the the, the major case, you probably remember the name of it uh, is, is the one in Quebec. Um, There's this big case in Canada. And the reason it's considered international law, we were told, is essentially because they got really good scholars and it's been referenced since. And and basically the finding, and again, it's much, much more nuanced, but for our purposes, the basic finding is Quebecois people, sorry, 
do not obviously have a right to secede from Canada because like if you're Quebecois, you can run for office and you can vote. And it's not like being a Jew in Germany in 1938 or like being, you know, maybe you'd say a Native American over many centuries on this continent. Uh, It's just not the same. And therefore, you don't have that right. But there have been cases where that right has been invoked and things that wouldn't normally be totally cool under international law, and this is where space comes in, things that wouldn't normally be allowed are considered to be acceptable. Um, so we use the case of Bangladesh, which I, I guess is kind of the classic case of this, where Bangladesh is is not only breaks off from Pakistan, but very quickly is recognized by the international community as a legit state. Um, because, you know, the word, you know, we, we, we are not historians of, of this, so I'm very uncomfortable using... Uh, uh, with, with what language we want to use, but but the word genocide was used in that context by scholars. Um, so it was considered that those people had a right to their own state. And so what we essentially say is, you know, under international law, you can't create a sovereign country in space. And, and it is important to note that no one has ever created a state out of a out of a commons to our knowledge. Um, so it would be new, but you could get a condition. You can imagine it, and this is where it gets a little science fictiony, but where self-determination was allowed to be invoked by some means to allow people say on mars to claim a territory for their own protection yeah i mean so that if you're living on mars and you're still part of the united you're still essentially a united states citizen uh because your ancestors launched from the u.s (laughs) uh you you probably can't actually be part of government like you can't participate in debates in live time because there's at least a three minute delay maybe a 22 minute delay and so you could argue that you don't really have representation in government and the people back home don't know what you're going through and you've sort of changed culturally changed so much that they just don't understand what you're going through. So you could argue that your self-determination is not being realized because you can't participate in the process because you're so far away. And so then the question is, would that rise to the level where you are allowed to now claim a state? And we are a little skeptical because, you know, so if if you end up with essentially a bunch of Americans in one spot saying, well, we don't have self-determination, so we want to be our own state. How would, for example, China feel about essentially, you you know, United States citizens starting U.S. part two on the moon (laughs) or something? And, you know, they probably wouldn't like that. And how would countries feel about this precedent of the commons now becoming a state Uh, and, you know, are other people going to you know, move to the moon or Mars and say, well, now we get to be a state too because of self-determination. Seabed um, states at some point down underneath. Yeah, uh, that's, right, yeah. Yeah. that's right. That's right. And so um, we, we think it's possibly quite unlikely, but <laughs> if you were to be able to create a state on Mars, it's possible you would need to have uh, quite a bit of loss of rights uh, before that's able to happen, which is unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting question. You know, I think it really raises this question, frankly, in my mind, of, of the role territory plays in a environment like a commons as being an essential component of state and maybe self-determination, a concept which really was only has come into its fore since the uh, Montevideo Convention uh, and those kind of stands were laid out, like has begun to maybe even supplant it in these hypotheticals where what are the values we're really serving? Uh, so we have to talk about one topic before we we close. And I want to talk about space war uh, because this is, of course, there's a whole movie series based off of the name. It's right there. Star Wars uh, war features probably in every science fiction account that I can think of. Almost everyone anyway. And you guys have, have an interesting time, an interesting take on space war. Talk to us about some of the weirdnesses of space war and how they enter into this equation and the political equation uh, before we uh, before we have to part. 
So are you interested in like the near term uses of space for war on Earth? Or are you talking about how war might be different if you have Mars versus Earth, for example? I think a little bit the Mars versus Earth scenario is a little interesting. I think people can envision some of the more near-term solutions, something we've dealt with and thought about, but those further out sort of scenarios that are feature so prominently in our popular culture, um, I thought you all had some interesting takes about how maybe they're a little different than people might think. Yeah, so one of the things we were a little bit worried about is, you know, say you have Mars versus Earth. Uh, so first of all, we think that this would be highly unlikely for a really long time because Mars is not going to rebel against Earth until Mars could survive without Earth, which is many decades away. You know, they're going to need advanced computer chips and you can only get those in a few places on Earth. And so like Mars is going to have to be very developed before they have they feel safe enough to attack Earth. But if they did feel safe enough to attack Earth, there's some things you might have to worry about. So, you know, on Earth, if you've got two countries and you're using chemical weapons or something, you have to worry about the wind changing direction and the chemical weapons blowing in your face. If you release a biological weapon, you have to worry that it's going to spread to your country and your people are going to get it also. If you set off a nuclear bomb and it's a big enough explosion, you got to, you know, your people aren't going to be happy about nuclear winter either. (laughs) And so to some extent, sharing this bubble with the people that you're angry at uh, might mitigate some of the uses of these more extreme kinds of weapons of war. Um, On the other hand, another thing that keeps you from using those weapons of war is concern about retaliation. So if you use chemical weapons, your enemy will too. And so to some extent, you're willing to, you know, to back off because you don't want to get uh, attacked by it also. But, you know, so if you're not sharing the same atmosphere, you can imagine, you know, the Martians saying, all right, if we drop, you know, maybe they're not going to drop nuclear weapons, but if they nudge an asteroid in our direction, that could essentially create the equivalent of a nuclear winter. Uh, And we know the dinosaurs weren't super happy when that (laughs) happened. Um, And so, you know, because we're not necessarily sharing in the implications, you can imagine war between two different entire planets could get quite nasty uh, if you didn't have to worry about blowback, for example. Yeah, the, the one thing, so one way to think about it is, is you know, because of the way gravity works, we are effectively both, both Mars and Earth would be down a hole, right? Which you never want to be down a hole when you're fighting a war. Uh, and and so, uh, you know, it could be especially bad, but the main reason we wanted to get into this idea of warfare is that there is a belief held by many people in the space community that the sort of sheer awesomeness of going to space will mitigate war or, or the sort of riches we'll derive from space will mitigate war because we'll be so rich. Why would you have war? And um, so one of the things we did is we, we did try to read a lot of the war literature and talk to scholars in war. And, 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 you know, we, we ended up deciding we didn't want to do a sort of full fledged, let's talk about theory of war because it's, it's incredibly complicated and people disagree, but we did want to talk about like, there are scenarios on earth where war happens um for reasons that have nothing to do with sort of like how good each person who is a human is doing. They have to do with relative power of the nations involved. And so we mostly just wanted to document that to be like, guys, this is, it's still going to be dangerous. Um, it's, it's still going to be a risk. Um, yeah. yeah. Not, not only do we not believe that war is going to stop because of going to space. If it did happen, you could imagine it being particularly and, bad. And the, the one last thing is the reason that's really important to us is one of the main arguments said over and over and over by different factions. Uh, Elon Musk says it. Stephen Hawking used to say it is that we have to have 
uh, a Mars base, not just that it would be good economically or whatever, like we have to have it, even if it's a bad idea economically, because we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket as a species. So examples like that, uh, to me, help illustrate that actually the equation could be more complicated. There are things we might do in pursuit of that extra basket that imperil the eggs. I don't want to in go in. Yeah, I don't, yeah, this, yeah, this metaphor is getting weird, but you see what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, the Alderaan scenario is all too realistic is what you're saying. The Death Star <laughs> taking right, out yeah, a whole yeah, planet. Exactly. Um, no, totally fair. Well, so let's, let's, we're coming to the end of our time together. So I want to bring this together with like a kind of a, a vision for folks, because you will close the book noting a, a thread you have from the outset, which is that you're not inherently hostile to the idea of space settlement. You came to this project thinking this is something real and desirable and wanting to look at it. And you've, you've just kind of become more skeptical of it. So, you know, you talk a little bit about some of the arguments that you find might be persuasive for pursuing at least certain types of space, human space exploration, I'll say, whether it's settlement or at least, you know, enhanced travel to outer space. Um, and what are those arguments that you find persuasive and, and what do they, what would they lead to in terms of a positive vision of space exploration and perhaps settlement in the future? Where, where do you think that lead in the near term and then perhaps beyond that? Well, so one of the arguments when we started researching the book that we found the most compelling was that it's awesome and no one has a right to stop you from doing this awesome thing. And over the course of researching the book, we still felt like it was awesome, <laughs> but we felt like the risks that could be incurred on Earth, for example, starting a new space race with two nuclear powers, the U.S. and China, meant that it's awesome, but people have a right to slow you down because there are potentially implications for other people. So that argument kind of fell on its face. But we still find this plan B argument compelling, this argument that it would be nice to have a backup of humans somewhere in case something happens to Earth. Um, but the one of the main points we make in the book is that you can't have a self-sustaining Mars settlement for a really long time. It's just going to be too hard. You're not going to have enough humans. You're not going to have enough technology. And as Zach just said, you need to make sure that creating your plan B planet doesn't destroy the planet back home. So if the best argument is that we need a plan B, then to us that really argues that you need to think very carefully about how you do this and you need to worry about the law, you need to worry about the biology, you need to worry about the ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we sort of end the book on a roadmap of here are some things that we think need more work if we want to try to make this long-term plan B thing happen. And we need to all accept that it's going to take a long time. And so let's just sort of work on slowly trying to do it and do it the right way. Yeah, the one thing I would add to that is it's like the problems basically show up when you start talking about permanent settlement where people are like having families and considering themselves to be of this place. But you can do a lot both legally and maybe technologically that's short of that that's really cool. Like so if you want to explore like all over the moon, all over Mars, like there, there's no legal problem with that. There's no obvious like ethical problem with it. It's when you start bringing in like children and quasi-territorial claims and this more advanced stuff that it gets scary. But, and then what we, we try to close on is this idea that like, there is a lot of development that needs to be done technologically, but also in terms of international law. And it's all kind of awesome, uh, right? Uh, so it's like, you know, oh, it's like- it wholeheartedly, yeah. This is my, yeah. This is my retirement plan, so please, <laughs> uh, I'm all on board. Uh, you know, I'd be curious to ask you. So one thing we thought about just, you know, we were completely naive to international law. And so we ended up, you know, reading these textbooks and really trying to dig into it. And I, I wondered why, maybe you could answer this, why more young people aren't interested in international law? Because it's like one of the few places where you can maybe have a real impact by just doing scholarship. 
Um, like an impact for generations. <laughs> yeah, like you, you could the be. The future of humans in space. You could be the, the grotiest of space. That could be you, children. <laughs> that is that is a noble view and something I will share with my students when I am teaching again. Uh, but sadly, relatively limited opportunities in private practice for international law, for better or for worse. <laughs> but uh, maybe that will change as we get closer to this era of uh, true space exploration and all the legal questions it raises. So we are almost out of time together today, uh, but we have a tradition here at Chatter. We end each interview a conversation with a random question drawn from our Chatter box, um, <laughs> which is a physical box of questions, which I do not have access to at the moment. So I found a few of our virtual ones that I randomly selected. Admittedly, the first one I randomly selected was, should the U.S. send a manned mission to Mars? That seems too on the nose. So I'm going to use the host prerogative. I think we know the answer to that one. We'll take that one out. Instead, it is I'm going to slightly modify this. The question I got is, what is your favorite or least favorite spy or political thriller movie or TV show? I'm going to change that to space movie or TV show. What do you think is the best or the worst science fiction space travel movie or TV show that you would recommend or strongly urge people to avoid? I'll give it for each of you separately. No need to come up with a consensus answer. Yeah. yeah we don't watch a lot of TV <laughs> we're, we're... or movies. I really, I really <laughs> like The Expanse. Uh, Expanse is pretty cool. Agreed. The Expanse is pretty awesome. So I'm going to go with The Expanse. And I also, so my day job, I study how parasites manipulate the behavior of their hosts. And <laughs> The Expanse has a parasite that like manipulates behavior. And so it's got all the things that I that I love. Yeah. So I'll say The Expanse. Part of why this is a tough thing to answer is because I, at least for me, I specifically avoided all science fiction about space settlement during the research phase because like you will find people in this field who cite science fiction as if you're allowed to cite science fiction, um, which you are not. Um, and, and so, so I don't know, I, I guess, you know, I, I repeatedly had people where I was like, is this thing possible? And someone was like, well, they did it on the expanse. So probably. And, um, and it's, we told that to the guys who wrote the expanse and they're like, it's fiction. <laughs> like, well, we know. We know. Um, Oh, okay. Here we go. Here's an offbeat one. Uh, and recommend is kind of a funny word here. In the 70s, Kelly is, oh. Kelly is realizing what I'm talking about. There was a, a movie put out. It's like a 40-minute film called Libra. You can find it somewhere on YouTube. It was put, put out by 1970s libertarians. Uh, and it is in favor of giant rotating space stations because Earth is not libertarian enough. And it features like shag carpets and mutton chops with like jazz music while a space station goes by and best of all because it's like 1970s libertarians every word that starts with an e noise has the word free put in front of it so when people people say <laughs> it's your responsibility to it's your free decision it is incredible it's funny start to finish i have a fantasy of doing a showing of it at the cato institute uh, i haven't pulled that off yet um but it's just pure hilarity and, and and will give you a little window into what people were thinking in the late 70s about why we need to do this right now that was a perfect perfect answer <laughs> i love it that's a great recommendation i've had people recommend this to me before i you're reminding me i need to track this down um i will say if you've been avoiding science fiction for a while just because i've said it on my other podcast numerous times you should check out for all mankind it is We've i think heard, the show yeah. that wrestles with a lot of this stuff that you guys are wrestling with it's a great synergy with the book so uh i recommend i'd be curious to hear about your critiques of some of it but we will have to have you back on chatter or one of our other podcasts here at lawfare another time to dig into that because we are out of time today but zach and kelly wienersmith thank you for joining us here today on chatter Thanks this for having us. This was, this was, we did not get enough chances to talk about space law in our other interviews. We are so excited. <laughs> Thank you.
That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.